Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward returns to begin a series of discussions on the second volume of his History of Rock and Roll. This episode focuses on the British invasion and rise of Motown in 1964 and America's folk rock and soul music responses in 1965. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, the prodigal son has returned. Ed Ward, the original co-host of the show, is back with the history of rock and roll, volume two, 1964 to 1973, for our purposes, although the title says 1977. Ed, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. It's good to be here. Good. And so, do you want to explain the 1977 thing up front, or dive right in? Well... I, I this will be corrected uh, in two years when they do the, the paperback. Um, I couldn't convince the uh, editor to change that title. I really do is this thing goes up to essentially the uh, the last waltz, which I believe is 1974. Um, the end of the band. But earlier in the book, I have talked about the Elvis 1968 comeback special, his, his Christmas TV show, which um, was an unprecedented thing in popular music. Never before had a faded star come roaring back and become hugely popular once again. And uh, I ended that chapter by saying, who would have guessed, looking at how you know young and vital he looked, that he would be dead before 10 years was up? And then I, I realized as I was writing on, you know, you dropped that there, you've got to pick it up. So I wrote a chapter about Elvis's death in 1977 as an addendum, and I marked it as such, but the editor didn't seem to understand that there was a whole lot more between where the main narrative left off and this one little 
ending. It, it, it's nice to put it there because it is the end of Elvis, the end of an era, and very definitely seals off a, a moment of rock and roll history. But unfortunately, I, I haven't yet been slammed by those, the type of critic who uh, likes to do that sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's not a big deal, but I wanted to give you a chance to clarify that. And I think the band actually, the last concert, the last Waltz concert was November 1976. So you can make a case that it goes up to 77. And, and you know, one of the things I like to do when I read this is is wait for you to miss something. And um, every time I think I've got you, there's the paragraph mentioning Queen or, uh, you know, I thought I had you on, the, on not bringing up. Land of the Rising Sun, House of the Rising Sun by the Animals in this first chapter we're going to discuss today, and it's there. I found it. So, you know, you're a slippery one, Ed. You're a slippery one. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> so, but let's start with the purpose of the book. In the introduction, you say that the purpose of the book is to show how movements arise, how they interact with their intended audiences, and how they die. What's that mean? Yeah, that, Well, it means that Rock and roll having become the um, the pretty much default way of expressing popular music, it then tribalized. You know, there there were uh, people. Well, to begin with, there were Beatles people and Stones people, and none of those people. But uh, now, a as it goes into the '60s and and '70s, there are genres within rock and roll. And that their adherents are um, come out of scenes. You know, there, there's this New York scene. There's um, a uh, there. Well, that's getting ahead of me. The, I was going to say the Austin scene, and there was a California scene, definitely. Um, and there was a scene up in up in the Pacific Northwest, and these all had their distinctive modes of clothing, speaking, words, and um, in some of them, there were also scenes that went beyond music. There were painters and writers and artists of various sorts that um, were all working alongside of the musicians. They might meet when the musicians played or in a club that the um, musicians were favored in. Uh, but it was a, a much larger thing than just, you know, a bunch of guys with guitars. And you, you open, you start the, or you title the first chapter, Your Sons and Daughters Are Beyond Your Command. A, a Bob Dylan quote from his song, Time, The Times They Are a Change, in which you discuss in the chapter. Why did you pick that quote for this chapter? Oh, probably because I'd just been to see um, Bill Kirchin performing. Um, Bill is has a remarkable version of that song in his set that shows that it's completely contemporary. But the, um, the, another reason is this, the, the song is taking note of something pretty much after it's happened. Um, teenagers are now their own society, even if they're living with their parents still, they are, moving away from being obedient little kids. Um, this uh, uh, was heightened by rock and roll. There, there were 
kids who listen to admittedly people who are older than they are making music that said, you know, the old rules don't apply. And now they're about to start hearing music made by people increasingly close to their own age, starting with the Beatles. You, you start the chapter with a date, December 26, 1963. What happened on that date? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the day that the, the DJ plays I Want to Hold Your Hand and what and WWDCAM. Okay, that was interesting. There was a disc jockey in Washington, D.C., who um, had a friend who was a flight attendant on the British Overseas Airways Corporation, as it was known in those days. And she came into Washington with a copy of the Beatles uh, single, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and um, gave it to this guy and said, you know, you might want to play this on your on your radio show. And he did, and it basically ignited Beatlemania. The folks at Capitol Records who had been not real crazy about putting a, out a a record by four guitar wielding guys from Liverpool thought, hmm, maybe this will work. And of course the fans went, what was that? And the explosion was on. And and the because Capital had turned down the single, the previous singles, two American small labels, Swan, had gotten the rights to She Loves You and had not been able to, to make it hit. And VJ had put out um, Please Please Me and then passed on She Loves You. And so as soon as, as this hits, VJ, you know, Capital goes to the record presses. You mentioned that RCA, they actually had to borrow RCA's pressing plants to print up enough copies of I Want to Hold Your Hand. They print up a million copies of the thing. And 200,000 right. of those were farmed out to RCA. But VJ and Swan immediately get back in the act and re-release their Beatles licensed tracks. And the lawsuits are flying. So, yeah, all of a sudden there were more Beatles records than you could keep track of. There's also a label called Tolly that uh, had a Beatles record. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was. But um, I guess would be let me do. VJ had to um, move so fast that they misspelled the word the word Beatles on the first uh, pressings of their their Beatles record, and also it played a heavy part in putting them out of business. This veteran blues and uh, soul label um, sold so many records that they went out of business, which is seems to be paradoxical until you understand the way credit works in the record business. Yeah, I mean, they, they get in hock for all the records that they print, and then they can't collect from the distributors in time to pay their bills. And if they don't have another Beatles album coming, the distributors don't feel any inclination to pay. So it's a, it's a story we discuss in the first part of rock history, and it's something that's going to continue to happen to smaller labels uh, throughout the rest of the 20th century. But the Beatles just explode, and I think that your point about this depth of catalog suddenly becoming available was a big factor in just how big they got, because it wasn't a matter of, here's one enormous hit single, 
with no catalog behind it. Suddenly there's an enormous hit single and there's another enormous hit single and a third one. And there's a whole album of Beatles stuff. And and if you really dig, there's two albums of Beatles stuff. And so right. kids, kids were just flooded with Beatles product and it was all great. And they were all buying it. Um, there, there was a record store that reported to Billboard about how little kids would come into the store ask for a Beatles record and not, not even look at anything else. They'd pay for their Beatles record and leave. That was all they were interested in. But it did have some spillover effect. And, you know, that same Ed Sullivan that they debuted on, actually it's time for me to play our first song, which is the very first Beatles song played on American national television. This is the Beatles doing All My Loving on the Ed Sullivan Show in February 1964. Close your eyes and I'll kiss you Tomorrow I'll miss you And that was the Beatles doing Paul McCartney's All My Loving on the Ed Sullivan Show in February. And I think one thing that's important to stress for audiences in 2019 or 2020 when this drops, that this TV show was enormous on a level we cannot comprehend today. Something like 70 million plus people watched this. Can you describe the impact of you know, three broadcast channels, Ed Sullivan, Sunday Night, the highest rated show on TV, even without the Beatles? You add the Beatles in this wave of hype. I mean, what was that like? Was that just dominating conversation everywhere across the country all at once the next day? Well, among a certain demographic, yes, but certainly not among adults. This was obviously not to be taken seriously. But it was still a big enough phenomenon that adults had to discuss it. I mean, they had the Beatle wigs and virtually every corny TV sitcom in 1964 did some kind of Beatles parody. Yeah. You know, everybody was aware of it. It was just that the kids were the ones who loved it. Everybody was aware of it. Not many people were in favor of it, maybe was, was the way to put it. And there was also the fact that the um, the entire northeast of the country was snowed in at the point where um, uh, the, the evening of the Ed Sullivan show and nobody was going out. So, oh, gee, we got to stay home. What are we going to do? Well, watch Ed Sullivan, of course. And so they did. And and right there on that same episode is the Dave Clark Five, a Tottenham band from North London that immediately the term, you know, as you're talking about, it takes a little while for the term British invasion to start getting thrown out there. But immediately the record industry, not every company can get a piece of the Beatles, even though several have, but Epic's got the Dave Clark Five out. Somebody else signs Jerry and the Pacemakers. I mean, the the... Mercy Beat explosion comes to America pretty quickly on the heels of the Beatles. And flopped for the most part because not all of the talent in Liverpool was all that good. And, you know, I mean, who listens to the uh, the Undertakers these days? Yeah, you know, I, they, they, I scraped that one up. It's not worth the trouble. <laughs> they're... they're um, I mean, it may have been Jackie Lomax's band, and he may have been a good friend of um, George Harrison's, but just because they were from Liverpool, 
what really should have happened should have been that American A&R people should have looked more closely at England because there were, you know, there were things going on in Liverpool's arch rival Manchester and uh, up the coast a bit in, um, uh, I forgot where the animal Newcastle on Tyne. Newcastle on Tyne. Yeah. And uh, there were all kinds of bands all over the place, most of whom formed when they saw the Beatles, when the Beatles were doing their fairly intense touring of the British Isles. um, It was just, it was an inspiration. And some of those people did have talent, as we eventually got to find out. And even the lesser talented ones, I mean, the Dave Clark Five did incredibly well in the States and managed to keep the Mercy Beat alive long after the Beatles had dropped it, because probably because Dave Clark couldn't play any other rhythms. Um, But you talk about George Harrison's famous quote, you know, what do they, they've got everything here when he came to the States. What do they need us for? And, And what the States had going was the folk scene. Give us a little right. update on, on what the folk scene was doing in early 64. Well, it was trying to establish itself. And part of what people were, uh, what the record industry was after was not solo performers, but what I call hootenanny bands, you know, the, where the sort of expanded versions of the Kingston Trio, with several singers and a, a lot of guitars and banjos and and um, upright bass and you know, basically acoustic bands, the Nobelic upper 10,000 and so forth. And um, even some of the uh, band leaders who had big bands that played society events had uh, had hootenanny bands. That's where um, David Crosby came from. He was playing in, I believe, I can't Les Browns or somebody had a had a yeah, band. Yeah, was the Les Brown Orchestra. Yeah, and um, you know, which they might have hauled these kids around as a in between sets entertainment. Well, the band's going to take a break now, but we'd like to present some talented youngsters, yada yada. And um, there was David. Uh, yeah, it's kind of similar to the way Lonnie Donegan's skiffle band emerged out of the trad jazz, the bigger trad jazz bands in England mm-hmm. about seven years earlier. And But you also had these really popular Joan Baez and Kingston Trio that were moving enormous amounts of LPs. Paul and Mary, they're the ones to look at because they were managed by Albert Grossman, who was a guy who used to own a folk club in Chicago but decided to go full-fledged into management and started signing up people. He got Peter, Paul, and Mary, and through them, he got Bob Dylan. Yeah, and he used Peter, Paul, and Mary to promote Bob Dylan because they're the ones who covered um, Dylan's songs and brought them to the pop charts first. But Dylan, <laughs> Dylan's had his sort of underground breakthrough with the Free Will and Bob Dylan, his second album, and we talked about that in the 1963 episodes, but now he comes out with the times they are a change in, and it's a very different thing. It's much more political, he participates in the March on Washington, and acquires a pretty heavy reputation as a voice of his generation, a label that he would try to get away from. 
He didn't. He doesn't try to get away. If you've been to see him recently, the uh, MC always goes. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the man you've been coming, you've been waiting to see, the uh, a great songwriter and the voice of his generation. They say that every night. <laughs> so I tried to get away from it. Bob has to be okay with that. Yeah, maybe winning the Nobel Prize changed his mind on that. But another songwriter that was oh, that was before that happened. Yeah, I mean he's <laughs> and then but another songwriter who is making political statements, although more guardedly, and having more success on the pop charts at this point is is Chicago's uh, Curtis Mayfield and his band The Impressions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, well, it was the civil rights movement and. Curtis came out of the church, and there was a branch of the black church that was progressive, uh, largely centered apparently in Chicago, because that's also where Pop Staples was doing his thing. And um, Pop Staples kept it in the church, but Curtis had already gone pop, and he was he was really big on making political statements, that gentle political statements, you know, he, he was not, you know, writing songs called Kill Whitey or anything or Integration Now. He, he, was, he was saying, you know, be proud of yourself, keep pushing, keep moving. This is all going to turn out okay. And let's hear and a little bit of Go ahead and finish your point and then we'll hear, hear keep on pushing. Sometimes he, he couched it in the language of the church. Sometimes he just flat out like Bob Dylan wrote a protest song. You 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 hear um, people get ready is definitely in the language of the church. You know this train he's talking about is it about salvation or is it more a salvation on an earthly level, uh, meaning justice to black people? That's that's one of the great things that Curtis Mayfield was able to do. And let's hear uh, the impressions. Keep on pushing. Keep on pushing. I've got to keep on pushing. Mm-hmm. I can't stop now. Move up a little higher. Some way or somehow. And that was Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions with Keep On Pushing. And another soul singer uh, who started to dabble with political statements right at the end of his life was Sam Cooke. Once again, the church in Chicago. And his song, A Change Is Gonna Come, was the B-side of his last hit single, Shake, which was a cutting-edge dance tune. And we talked about Sam a lot in the 1963 episode. But I think it's it's definitely worth mentioning him again in 1964 because he was absolutely at the top of the music business world. He'd gotten control of his publishing. He had his own record company. He was still having hits, and he was taking, you know, the shake change is going to come single is just absolutely a signpost for where the 60s are going to go. He'd been listening to Sly right. Stone's first production on Bobby Freeman's uh, Do the Swim, and he incorporates you know, the absolute cutting edge of R&B dance uh, into the shake. And then he's listening to Bob Dylan and produces A Change Is Going to Come. So we don't get into hypothetical histories here, but 
definitely if Sam had lived, he would have continued making a huge impact, but he didn't. Oh, yeah. And so, so he, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, you too. Well, I was just going to say, you know, in the vacuum left by Sam Cooke's death, uh, Barry Gordy's Motown does more than step into the breach. I mean, they blow it wide open. And in the summer of 64, the Supremes start an unprecedented run of number one hit singles. But Barry stayed far, far away from politics. It was, he, he felt that would alienate the large white audience that he'd attracted and, and he'd done that on purpose. Yes. And it was probably a shrewd decision. Um, and, you know, plenty of other people stepped into the breach there. And the rest of R&B does its best to keep up with Motown. Atlantic is, um, it's kind of the last gasp of the Brill building or Teen Pan Alley, where Atlantic has hits with the Drifters under the boardwalk and Solomon Burke has hits. But how did that coterie of songwriters, the, the Gary Goffins and Carol Kings, deal with the British invasion? Not well. Uh, Goffin and King uh, were writing songs for the animals and for Paul Revere and the Raiders who were an American uh, British flavored group from the Pacific Northwest um, and uh, oh, and also the birds strangely enough but um, a lot of those people couldn't they, they couldn't hear Dylan you know Dylan wasn't boy girl uh, subjects um, the, the level of abstraction in his lyrics was something they thought was horrible. You know, they couldn't they couldn't stand listening to it, and so um, a lot of those people they didn't make the transition. Some of them did. Um, Goffin and King, uh, Carol King, obviously went on to uh, a career as a solo artist, um, and in a, in another songwriting factor on the West Coast, Randy Newman uh, was writing stuff, not for the animals, but for Alan Price when he left the animals. Um, there's a the first album by Alan Price, the Alan Price set, um, has a bunch of, of Randy Newman songs that nobody ha has heard. I mean, they're on his albums. And Burt Burns, the producer uh, of, and writer of Twist and Shout, he actually went to England and discovered Van Morrison and produced his first few hits. Well, them was uh, doing very well in Britain, and they were doing okay in the United States. But uh, Burt's genius was in discovering that the rest of them were just, you know, them. And then there was this other guy standing in front, little guy played saxophone and he was he was what was worth looking at and, and developing so he brought him to the united states and did so and recorded him in england too with jimmy page uh making a big mark on those early then records as well and becoming a protege of burt burns and the beatles have a second act immediately in the summer when their movie a hard day's night comes out and you explain a little bit about what that movie added to the beatle fan experience well, it was a chance to see your favorite beetle blown up to gigantic size on, on the screen in a movie theater. And it was your chance to experience the Beatles with perfectly mixed sound and you see them playing 
And it also gave you the opportunity to be in the middle of the screaming crowds that followed the Beatles everywhere, or so the film would have us believe. Uh, I think they were probably a little better protected, not having to run down uh, train station platforms pursued by screaming girls. But, um, you know, it, it was it was a way of saying, you're right, you've made the right decision. Here are the Beatles. Here is as much of the Beatles as we can cram into an hour and a half. And, and, and that movie, go ahead. So people want to see that that movie over and over. That it was like playing a record, you know. Uh, audiences just loved it, and it captured a real sense of of sort of high water of modernism and and the black and white footage. It's 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 artsy and creative, and Richard Lester's direction is is innovative, and it's sort of the high water mark of the early 60s idea of hip, even though the Beatles themselves would morph into more of a hippie sort of hip within just 18 months from making A Hard Day's Night, there's a moment that's crystallized in Hard Day's Night that's very much the state of the art of 1964. And people like Roger Miller on the country pop side were having hits like King of the Road. And and the Smothers Brothers sort of made, to me, epitomized that, even though they continued to be popular yeah. in the later 60s. But that sort of short-haired, Bob Newhart, smart-ass kind of guy who's, who's looking at the world in a winking way, but not really challenging the sort of Rat Pack older generation dominance at that point. And and, you know, Roger Miller to me is really fascinating because he's this classic Nashville singer-songwriter who's retrospectively king of the road just totally overwhelms the rest of his work. But if you start chronologically and listen to Roger Miller, he's got a ton of really fun songs, Dang Me and, and Chug-a-Lug and, and, and all these other things. And but there's something about, heard. Yeah, and there's something about Roger Miller that – you know, peaks at this period and he never quite captures that form again. And, and um, I think it's, you know, this, this, it's a, it's a fulcrum 1964, the end of the old era and, and the beginning of the other. And it's very unique in the Beatles accomplishment that they're able to personify what was cool in 1964 and yet be, be in a position to keep evolving as the sixties, as the changes in the sixties accelerate. And another talk, go ahead. Some of that had to do with their youth and, and the fact that, you know, creativity, once you once you hook into a way of, of doing it, doing something uh, expressive, it, it, it can, if, you know, it's like, it's like a plant. If you continue to water it and feed it, you know, it'll, it'll get bigger. And another document in 1964 that, that it, sort of captures this high point of rock and roll because, you know, this is kind of the last year when artists like Chuck Berry have hits, when Jerry Lee Lewis is still able to tour England and, and draws a very similar crowd to the Beatles and the Stones, you know, Little Richard and, and the Everly Brothers are touring England around this time as well. And the, the some enterprising entrepreneurs on the West Coast put together something called the Tammy Show and managed to book this incredible lineup of bands. You've got the Beach Boys, you've got several Motown acts, you've got Jerry and the Pacemakers, you've got the Rolling Stones, you've got James Brown, and it all fits together beautifully. What was going on in 1964 that allowed such diversity, not just diversity between American bands and British bands, but African-American groups are fitting in seamlessly in this 
pop explosion? Well, there's a bunch of things about the Tammy show. For one thing, you can't really see them um, unless you're looking for them, but the band that plays on that film was amazing. It had Leon Russell, it had Glenn Campbell, it had a whole bunch of famous names who became famous later, you know, as, you know, the Wrecking Crew and other such backing groups. And, um, but the, the thing is that, see, nobody knew what the kids were interested in, you know, because they weren't kids. They, and they were, their kingdom was far enough behind them and utterly unlike what was going on right now that they just figured, well, you know, stuff that's on the charts, look on the charts and, you know, here we can't get the Beatles, we can't get the Stones, well, maybe we can't get the Stones. Who's this guy, James Brown? Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, they'd go for one act, get turned down, but the age would go, well, how about this, this one? And so it wasn't, it wasn't, done via, you know, the quote-unquote scientific research that you uh, employed for radio playlists and such. It was just put together for the kids, whoever they were, whatever they liked. And the Rolling Stones, who hadn't broken in America yet, they were big in England by this point. They'd come up in the wake of the Beatles in 63 as sort of London's answer and playing a hard rhythm and blues, a, a electric blues-based style of rhythm blues that was different than the sort of Ray Charles-derived rhythm and blues that was big in Mercy. But they hadn't broken in in the States, but Andrew Golden, their manager, was really making a point to work the States. And they toured in, in the summer of 64 when really people in America didn't want to hear about it, the Stones yet. Santa Barbara and New York were ready for them, but they were also playing, you know, to 50 people in Omaha, playing at County Fair in San Antonio. And then they had to go on after G James Brown and and James had no mercy on them and pulled out all the stops. But he also appreciated them and, and gave them free tickets to his uh, next uh, appearance at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. And it was probably pretty hard for him to resist them, given that Mick Jagger was was and Tony Basil, the choreographer and later pop star, was standing there, uh, you know, desperately trying to learn every single dance move James was throwing up. And let's cue up and hear the Stones. Uh, doing Chuck Berry's Around and Around live on the Tammy Show. What a crazy sound. But they never stopped running. Then the moon went down. Didn't sound so sweet. I had to take me a chance. I rose out of my seat. Just had to dance. Started moving my feet. And that was the Rolling Stones covering their master, Chuck Berry's Around and Around. And and that's a performance that despite, you know, kind of getting blown off stage and Andrew Oldham in his memoirs talks about how he feigned an equipment breakdown so they would have an extra long break after James Brown before the Stones went on. But people like Patti Smith talk in their you know, memoirs and about what an impact the Stones' performance there. And, you know, it's very anarchic. Keith Richards turns his back on the audience at the beginning of the show. Brian Jones is leaping around. 
And there's this new, stronger energy uh, coming out of this second wave. I mean, it's just one year, but we're already having a second wave of British invasion bands. And you've got the kinks who are already adapt reacting to Louis Louis by the Kingsman, which is this explosion of garage rock that came out of the Northwest Pacific Northwest of the U S in late 63 and continues to be a big hit in 64. And the kinks assimilate that into you really got me, but something happens that keeps the kinks from, from capitalizing on their success in the States. Well, part of it was that they, um, well, all the British bands had trouble getting visas and getting clearances from the musicians union. And, but um, the Kinks in particular um, were, as you say, anarchic. They, they were just crazy, you know, and, and the, the two Davies brothers didn't really like each other. So they were, um, they were constantly fighting on stage. They eventually got denied live performances in the United States because there were so many complaints about them. But they continued to make really great records. They they came out of R&B. That's another thing. They're, the first Kinks album is a bunch of covers of R&B, similar to the Stones, but not as well done. And there, there were so many R&B bands at that point. The, the Stones came out of uh, an intermission band uh, for um, another British jazz band, but um, it got to where the um, the fans came to see them, came to see the intermission band, and walked out on the headliners. And so that's that's the point when people began to realize there was something going on with the Stones. Yeah, the Stones were sort of analogous to the folk movement in the States, and that they came out of this trad jazz adjacent scene or a, a subset of the trad jazz scene that was into authentic blues and and their mentor Alexis Corner and his Blues Incorporated was uh, one of the groups that you're mentioning that they quickly blew past but by late 64 they're having hits in the states and and like you mentioned in the book Time is on my side is one of their first hits but that kind of steps on a single by Irma Thomas yeah Ir- Irma really didn't her career was was so sad she she kept getting brilliant songs and then Either they weren't they they were too weird for R and B radio, or in in the case of one where she really had it, which was "Time Is on My Side." Um, along comes this juggernaut from England and squashes it flat. And they did the similar but, thing to the Womack Brothers and the Valentinos. Uh, with their song "It's All Over Now," Sam Cooke had actually encouraged the Womacks to take the pill but since they wrote the song, or at least Bobby Womack had, and, and take the royalty checks and shut up. But Irma didn't have yeah. that luxury. And and the, very good management. Yeah, and and the another band that comes out of this second wave is the Animals, who have a huge hit with House of the Rising Sun, which, you know, for as much as Eric Burden denied it, he always claimed that he got it from the same folk sources that Bob Dylan had. It's pretty clearly obvious that the Animals got that song from Bob Dylan's first album. Right. And um, Alan Price, the keyboard player, and uh, Dylan palled around during the course of um, filming 
uh, Don't Look Back, the, the movie that Dylan did on his uh, his European tour, uh, there's, a, there's an outtake from Don't Look Back that's just amazing to see where Price and Dylan go shopping for clothing in a in a in a British menswear store or, or clothing. It, just, it wasn't menswear. Um, and in the middle of their looking at the goods, this woman and her little daughter come in to buy something, and Mom is just paralyzed by the sight of these two weirdos picking up shirts and trying them on, and uh, she's trying to keep her daughter from seeing it, but. The kid is like, oh, look at that. She's really fascinated. It, it's it's a wonderful thing that we haven't gotten to see until the um, the full movie with outtakes came out on DVD. It's it's a wonderful thing. And so, you know, um, I think maybe been one of the reasons Alan Price left the animals was that he saw what Dylan was doing and he figured he could do the same thing himself from the... Um, piano bench and eventually would try and also the big check he got for getting sole arrangers credit on the house of rising sun uh, helped finance right. that that departure and the rest of the band to this day insists that that was a group arrangement and you know nobody will ever know that wasn't actually there and before we get to the to the end of the chapter and dylan's switch to folk rock i want to i want to hit a couple more points there's we, we mentioned the aging rockers briefly but one of them, Roy Orbison, who's still doing these monumental pop operas out of Nashville, has another big hit this year uh, with Pretty Woman that supposedly he wrote on the bus with the Beatles, with Lennon and McCartney watching. And I and uh, I love to think of that, uh, you know, this guy who's getting blown away by these young punks night after night, but he's shows him at least for a moment that the old guy still has it. Yeah, and he also is somebody who... Um, came up in the Acuff Rose stable of, of uh, writers and publishers there in Nashville. So to him, it was like a job. You know, want, want a song? Okay, hand me, hand me some music paper and a pen, pen and uh, you'll have a song. I've got my guitar here. I'll bang something out. And the the Beatles, you know, Lennon and McCartney were very much in that same mold themselves. You know, McCartney said that they used to joke, "Let's write a swimming pool" or "Let's write some new cars." And 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 right. and until they hear Dylan, which which happens on their first trips to the U.S., they're not concerned with lyrics at all. But as soon as they get to the states, and and you know, I think George Harrison was hip to Dylan a little bit before they got to the states. But as soon as they digest the free will of Bob Dylan. These things are percolating, just like as soon as Dylan hears the animals doing one of his songs and getting this massive pop hit and doing it in a four and a half minute single, which is very long for that time. I mean, most singles yeah. were two minutes. And so there's definitely this beginning to this cross pollination. And, you know, you've got Mick Jagger watching James Brown and you've got the Beatles. I don't think that the, the fact that the Beatles covered multiple Motown songs on their Meet the Beatles album with the Beatles in Britain, I don't think that can be underestimated for how much that helped the amazing ascent of the Supremes just a little while later. I mean, when when the Beatles are doing press conference after press conference and mentioning Smokey Robinson as their favorite songwriter and Motown as their favorite records, that really gave white primed white America to hear what Barry Gordy and the Supremes were putting out. It was the sound of young America, as Gordy had always insisted. 
Yeah, and 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 he breaks through those barriers. And another guy who's you know, a king of the scene before the Beatles come along and is watching this British explosion closely. Phil Spector, he actually flew on the plane with the Beatles uh, before they came to America, or, you know, on their trip to America. How did Phil Spector adapt in 64? Well, he didn't really. He he was still wedded to the ethos that had given him all his success. And, uh, it was hard for him to break away. It was hard for him to envision a singer-songwriter. It was hard for him to envision a band that was static. The same five guys showed up every time they had the call. Um, he was dependent on studio musicians. He was dependent on songwriting factories. Um, it, it was It was something he really could not conceive of and eventually it killed his career but for this last year he's still having hits with the righteous brothers and others you know bigger bigger than ever and he's got his finger on the pulse i mean he's not only hanging with the beatles he's tight with the stones manager andrew luke oldham and actually co-writes the song with the stones and is present when they do uh, buddy holly's not fade away he and gene pitney supposedly saved the day by bringing some cognac and telling everybody it's it's gene pitney's birthday and let's have a drink and that stops the fighting between brian jones and mick jagger long enough to record the song and but another producer who's been regionally successful and does adapt is UEP Mo down in Texas. What does UEP do and, and where does the Sir Douglas Quintet come from? Well, Huey wanted a Beatles and he didn't understand. He said he, he didn't understand what it was about the Beatles. So he legendarily checked into a motel and rented the rooms on either side of the one he was in so they wouldn't disturb anybody and took a portable photograph and a bunch of Beatles records and played them over and over and over again while he drank a bottle of wine. And his revelation was, and I don't understand this technically, but it was what he said was the beat was on the beat, just like Cajun music. And I and think his father, go ahead. His father, yeah. an accordion player, a Cajun accordion player. And, and I think so, what he was, Getting at was what the Beatles called the Pete Best beat or the Mercy beat because Pete Best, their first drummer, couldn't play anything except one, two, three, four. So it's like what we would think of as a house or disco beat where it's the four to the floor with the bass drum going one, two, three, four rather than the back beat that was favored in early rock and roll. And the Beatles moved away from it, but several of their early hit singles, Please Please Me, um, I want to hold your hand. She loves you. Have that one, two, three, four, thump, thump, thump. And Dave Clark made his entire career off that beat. And right. so I think that's what he was honing in on. Although when you listen to She's About a Mover by the Sir Douglas Quintet, they funk it up and it's and flip the beat. And it sounds almost like a precursor to ska. Well, that's because, I mean, Doug was, um, he was playing mostly with R&B bands uh, on the west side of San Antonio. And uh, the, uh, the famous quote from Huey, which I guess we can use since this isn't broadcast media, um, was that Doug was pestering him. I want to make a record. I want to make a record. And Huey, you know, you don't have a band. You, all you got is songs. You know, you got to do something. And finally, after this epiphany in the motel, Doug was 
in Houston pestering Huey yet again. And Huey said, okay, get you a band, grow you some fucking hair, and let's make a record. <laughs> and that they did. And it, and it, yep. they actually got booked on a variety TV show with Trini Lopez, who was kind of a folk <laughs> pop performer who had a big hit in 63. And Trini sussed out pretty quickly that these guys were from San Antonio and not England. Well, he, he found out in the dressing room. I mean, the way those guys talked, there was nowhere else they could be from. And and Trini said, wait a minute, you guys are from England? No, man, we're from San Antonio. Oh. <laughs> and, yeah, but they had a, a good run. She's About a Mover was a hit. And for a while, uh, Phil, they were one of many bands Phil Spector scouted out along with the Love and Spoonful and Modern Folk Quartet and other things as he tried to adapt to the Beatles thing. And, and they... You know, Bob Dylan repeatedly called them his favorite band, but they had a pot bust yeah. in 66 and, and the wheels came off. And, but I want to get to one other Texan before we get to our last segment, wrap the show. And that's Bobby Fuller, a kid from El Paso, who's definitely an alkalite of Buddy Holly, but also Phil Spector. And he's not quite on his breakthrough yet, but he's bubbling under. Yeah, he, he the Bobby Fuller 4 had a remarkable, almost orchestral uh, approach to uh, to playing, and they um, they got the opportunity a lot. I mean, th- don't forget that when you grow up in Lubbock as as they did, and go to El Paso, the nearest recording center was Buddy Holly's old one in, in um, with um, in Clovis, New Mexico. Yeah, in, in Clovis. I was just trying to remember the name of his producer. Never mind. I'm blanking on um, Norman Petty. So they, yeah. they could go, they could get in the car, drive to Norman Petty's studio and, and record. And if not having him produce, they'd produce themselves and save some money and just pay for the whole session, which is cheap, because who went to Clovis to record? And um, they put out a number of... Uh, records on their own label. Then they moved that label to Los Angeles. They became the house band at the Whiskey A Go-Go, which you couldn't ask for a better uh, situation at that point. And they um, they had great hits right up until something happened. Yeah, until Bobby Fuller was found bruised and soaked in gasoline and supposedly with a significant amount of gasoline in his stomach, and it was ruled a suicide, but that's a pretty brutal way uh, to kill yourself. The, the legend is he was messing with some L.A. mafioso's wife, but we'll probably never know. Another um, theory that his brother put out in his book, which was uh, involved um, the New York scene and, and the um, the mafia and uh, publishing rights. Uh, I'm sure it was probably a money deal. And so as we wrap this episode, the, you end the chapter with Dylan's response to all this rock and roll that he's been hearing and that's catching his attention. And before we talk about that, I want to play um, a, an early Dylan B-side that was suppressed. And this is this is actually Dylan's first rock and roll record. It's called Mixed Up Confusion. Man, and it's a killing me. Too many people And they're all too hard to please 
And that was Bob Dylan's mix-up Confusion, his first stab at rock and roll, which was on the John Hammond in Columbia quickly suppressed. Well, it wasn't his first stab. It was his first recorded stab. Yes, he yes. He was originally a rock roll band back in, back in Minnesota, and um, he was conversant with the vocabulary. And, um, yeah, I, I wonder, I, I don't have a copy of that, and should have looked at one before I was writing about it, but um, I wonder whether Tom Wilson was involved with that as producer, because Wilson was the um, was the great unknown revolutionary black man from Waco who went to Boston and uh, got involved with avant-garde jazz and then moved to New York and became a house producer at Columbia. And then after that ended, he went to uh, to Verve, where he uh, produced the Velvet Underground and, and the Mothers, among others. But um, he also produced Bob Dylan, and uh, he also pretty much started folk rock by taking the album that Simon and Garfunkel had just done. And um, while Paul Simon was in England and unable to do anything about it, overdubbing electric guitars and reissuing it as the sounds of silence based on the hit that he made from those overdubbed guitars on Simon and Garfunkel's original track. Track. Yeah, and that was a huge hit and a culture-changing move. But Dylan beat him to the punch with his first pushed folk rock single, Subterranean Homesick Blues. Talk about the impact of that song. Well, it was, uh, for one thing, my first copy of that came from a college roommate who had just spent several uh, months working in a radio station and glommed up as many singles as he could find. And the, the cover had clippings from the British press that said, Dylan showed us the way. Hmm. And so there's the impact. And he knew that rock and roll was the way to go. Um, I remember going to the Folklore Center, uh, the great uh, shrine of folk music in uh, Greenwich Village when I was a, a kid and um, buying a copy of Bringing It All Back Home, which was Dylan's first all or half electric album and uh, the the girl who was behind the cash register said you know that's a rock and roll album and i said oh his last one was too because i've been <laughs> trying to get some kids in my in my high school who had a band to record something oh no man that's that's, that's weird lyrics man nobody will ever understand it but i had heard that I heard the electric band that wasn't there listening to those songs. And so did, so, so did a young Jim McGuinn and the birds, but we'll talk about that on the next episode of Let It Roll right. as we continue our voyage through the history of rock and roll, volume two, the Beatles, the Stones, and the rise of classic rock. Edward, it's a pleasure to have you back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about 1966 Rock and Roll's second miracle year featuring electrified Bob Dylan, the Beach Boys making pet sounds, Stax hitting its stride, 
James Brown getting funky, the Beatles dropping acid, and the beginnings of the San Francisco scene. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.